Uh, let's see. I have some announcements here. Uh, I have something that people would. Oh, first, I should say that we're taking our normal July 4th uh, sabbatical intermission, and we'll be back on July the 12th. We'll be missing on the 28th and the 5th. The reason is, is because, oops, I've got some feedback, Terry, in my. Uh, we're, the reason for all of this, of course, is that June the 21st is the longest day of the year, and we get sunlight all the way to midnight, and that means that July, June 28th and July 5th will be shorter days as we approach winter now. So the end of summer occurs on the 21st, and the days start getting darker and darker, uh, as you're aware, in Alaska. Oh, you're crying. Yeah. That's right. It's a horrible day. We're going to be depressed all through June the 28th and July the 5th until we get back by. Hopefully in a couple of weeks we can recover from that. Uh, let's see. What else do I have? Oh, anytime you see the world in turmoil, the whole world in turmoil, those are important uh, things to consider. And uh, uh, civil society... Yeah, if it loses its means of maintaining itself, will bring about tremendous change. Every time in history that civil society has collapsed, there has been significant change. None of it good, in my view. But we shall see, actually, as you know, I believe that civil society will collapse and the world will clamor for someone to save it. And that someone will be provided, and he will not be a savior at first. Eventually, the savior does come, and we'll talk about that in the, in the thing today, the thingy, the yellow thingy, paper thingy. Okay, announcement. Uh, we have had a bevy, a plethora, a pod of Super Daves working for over a month now to bring us something completely new. Apparently, there's a lot more uh, Supper Daves did I say Super Day? Oh my gosh! That that we can't do that. That's uh, there's a trademark for him. Even though I think he has passed away, he, you don't get to steal that. Yeah. So yeah, his name was Osborne, right? In theory, but let's uh, me. We've had a a bunch of Supper Days. Apparently, there's a whole bunch of them now. There's some kind of cloning or. A holographic duplication going on that I don't know about, but uh, I'll be completely innocent when it goes to trial. He said, well, we, we have a bunch of supper daves working for over a month now to bring us something completely new. There is nothing really completely new. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new. It's all, all the same. Uh, some would interpret that, going on, I'm reading now again, as a team of people that don't exist. Oh, well, yeah, they would, absolutely. Why wouldn't they? Because... This is a group of people that doesn't exist. So, um, some would interpret that as a team of people that don't exist. It brings us absolutely nothing. And uh, nothing is an interesting concept. We should talk about nothing and infinity a lot more than we do. Everybody loves it. But if Supper Dave does exist, and notice the caveat. There's a disclaimer here, inferred. Here's what we're going to have pretty soon now. A brand new and slightly cool website at www.cliffside.org. Now, this is the subsplash, whatever that is. So you take a sandwich of some kind and you jump into a swimming pool with it. And so and out of that comes some kind of process that 
I don't know anything about. And two, a cliffside, I assume app, means apartment. No? Okay. Might, might be an application, I imagine. Appropriate? A cliffside app for your smartphones and tablets. Who cares about that? Nobody. Some guy in Texas. That's about it. The new site and app will have video along with audio of cliffside lectures. And in time, it will have all of our lectures from the Genesis series uploaded to them. More information to come. That is all. And that is something that this entire Pod, again, pride of Supper Dave's will be working on in this interim as well. While Lori and I try to put hardwood floor down and, uh, and get my sister out of her current location. Okay, that's that. Now I think I can start. Can I start? June the 14th, 2020, lecture discussion number 106. I hope it's 106. Am I right about 106? Okay, I got a nod of one head. Somebody's still awake. And it's, he says it's 106. On the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, and Ecclesiastes. And so we're off and running once again. Here we go again. And, and I meander along. As you know, I stop occasionally to investigate whatever happens to block the path. Um, which isn't exactly, the path isn't a straight line, it's serpentine, as you know, and everybody knows that. And so, as the highly trained religious professional, I pretend to lead this wagon train, and it is an easily distracted uh, concept. And recently, for example, it has seen ACE2 receptors. Let me erase this. I have become quite interested in ACE2 receptors, as you know. Our ACE2 receptor, uh, angiotensin converting enzyme number two. That's what that means. Angiotensin converting enzyme number two receptor. I'm trying to make you remember it by saying angiotensin converting enzyme number two receptor as much as I can fit it in without being weird. I think it's important. I think it is something that is uh, an end times uh, aspect. Okay, so what does this mean, angiotensin converting enzyme number two receptor? We can deduce from the name, just the name, that there's an enzyme in here, right? That's the E. Uh, that converts angiotensin because it says angiotensin converting enzyme number two. So I must have an enzyme that converts the angiotensin. Makes sense. I hope it is. And that may not be helpful, especially if you're not familiar with enzymes and or angiotensins. Enzymes are proteins. Welcome back to eighth grade biology. Uh, angiotensin is a larger protein. The angiotensin-converting enzyme number two receptor uses an amino acid-formed receptor on its outer area, and it attaches to the angiotensin, uh, this larger protein, and it cuts them up into smaller segments. That's what's happening at a very tiny microscopic level. This is, of course, a microbiological function in living uh, bodies. If you want to think of it as a metabolic process, that would be perfectly accurate. Uh, it's a biological catalytic function. 
So, what's going on in your body? You think your body has size and structure. When you begin to evaluate it, it is very small components, trillions of them. In other words, there are microscopic, tiny things in your body that accomplish extraordinary tasks, and they do it constantly, and it is a natural process. Your mind is controlling very little of it. It's automatic. It's autonomous. And for the purpose of today's concern, ACE2 receptors are specifically of interest, again, because of coronavirus 2019. Excuse me. As I've discussed in prior lectures, I think last week for sure, I don't know if I've done ACE2 receptors more than twice or three times, but maybe I can't remember. Who knows? The COVID-2019, you've seen the little diagram of it. It's actually the artist's rendering. It's actually quite accurate. There's this little ball of virus, and it's got these little spikes on the outside of it. And I've seen the autopsies, and you can actually see that particular virus enlarged uh, many thousands of times. Um, but that COVID-2019 with its spike can and does grab a hold of the ACE2 receptor. Of, so the ACE2 has a receptor and it's supposed to get an angiotensin. And then the amino acid receptor begins to cut that larger protein into pieces. But instead, the COVID-19 attaches to the receptor of the ACE2. And as soon as it does, and I, I can't, I'm not, well, I'm an incredible artist. I mean, so here's another example. This is how Picasso would do it. Let's imagine that's a cell. On the outside of that cell is an ACE2 receptor. Here comes the COVID-19. Now, this is not drawn to scale. Okay? But what the COVID-19 does is come in here, and instead of the ACE2 receptor amino, amino acid uh, groove type thing that it has, it, this, this spike goes ahead and attaches to that ACE2, and as soon as it does, it now has an entry point into the cell. And that's what's happening with this COVID-19 2019. So it's able to gain entry into the cell, and, um, and now this angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptor is converted itself. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not. It is connected, and it gets... Ah, start all over again. I said something poor. The ACE2 isn't affected, other than it is blocked from converting angiotensin. Instead of being able to convert angiotensin, that catalytic function is interrupted, and the COVID has attached. Eventually, the COVID gets into the cell. When it gets into the cell, that's when all the problems start. Actually, that's not true either. I'm doing nothing right. Once it gets attached to the ACE2, that's where the problem starts. The fact that it gets into the cell is because of that particular issue. I know no one cares yet, I hope. The problem, I hope you see the problem. Once it gets into the cell, that's extraordinary. And the uh, ACE2 is on the surface of many types of cells. It's on the myocardium in the heart. That's why I'm particularly interested in it. It's also in the pulmonary cells, which is the lungs. It's in the nasal cavity. It's in the mouth. And I hope you see the problem. This is why people wear masks, is to stop that infiltration of the COVID-19, which is aerosolized from getting into the mouth and the nose. And if you if you get it on your hands and you, uh, which I do, 
I have a hand licking problem. I don't. My dog does. We can't stop him, can we? He makes a, a spot on the sofa that no one can sit there for at least, at least a week. But if you lick your hands after you have contaminated them by either catching the aerosolation of somebody who is coughing or breathing on you heavy. We have a lot of heavy breathers here at uh, Cliffside. I mean, can't seem to get, they attract each other. Anyway, where am I? If you get it on your hand and you touch your mouth or your nose, then that is one of the pathways or the gateway entries. And that is why you see the medical professionals uh, wearing these masks to knock that down as much as they can. Um, but if it gets into the myocardium and the pulmonary cell structures, there's a big problem. Because ACE2 is part of the biological structure in the body that regulates blood pressure, inflammation, and bleeding response. That's what ACE2 does. It's part of its job, if you will. The COVID-2019, as soon as it's able to enter the myocardium cells of the heart or the pulmonary cells of the lungs through the ACE2, seizes the cell's protein system. What I mean by that, protein producing mechanism, and that, of course, allows for the COVID to then replicate at astonishing levels. The virus duplicates, and eventually there's so much duplication that it uh, kills the cell and comes out. And what does it do then? It finds, now it's instead of one little COVID guy, i got a million COVID guys, and they're all going out, and what are they looking for? That's right, ACE2 receptors and more myocardium or pulmonary and primarily, it's in the heart and the lungs. And, and it eliminates the inflammation response and the bleeding response. It doesn't eliminate it, but it, it, it diminishes it. And the mass of uh, spiked COVID 2019 copies uh, spread. They infect and they attach to more and more. And this cascade or this deluge of replication occurs. And ultimately, it is a fatal condition if the immune system cannot uh, affect it. Those of us of my age, we have what's called twilight immunity, which means that our immune system is in the twilight of its effectiveness. Next week, as much fun as this is, I'll talk about T-cells, what happens to T-cells as we get older. That is why old people have to be particularly careful. Young people, they're all full of vigor and vitality, and they can run around and do things. But us old people, we have to be careful here. Why does this interest me? What do I see in these ACE2 receptors? Well, I see Luke 17. That's what I think. Let me get rid of... Somebody's already bid on this, I understand. Thousands of dollars from that piece of artwork. I'm used to it. I am. But I see... Signs of Noah and the signs of Lot here. This is Luke 17. I think that ACE2 receptors are going to be involved in the signs of Noah and the signs of Lot, or the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Uh, uh, hopefully I can explain why as we go along today. Jesus Christ, the one who breathed into his disciples the breath of life. He breathes into the, his disciples the breath of life at John 20, 22. He's the one... He's in the Elohim, so he breathes into Adam, the breath of life, Genesis 2-7. He breathes into the animal kingdom, the breath of life, Genesis 7-22. So he's the one who, brings the, who breathes 
into living beings the spirit of the breath of life. And he tells his disciples at Luke 17, 26 through 34, things that are going to happen at the end of the age of the Gentiles. Signs that would be seen as at one of the days of the Son of Man. Luke 17, 22. So we should read that since it's going to be preeminent today. And I've read it before. It's very important uh, material, so it bears going through it again. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, so which kingdom is it? Obviously, it's the Messianic kingdom, in my opinion. He answers them and says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. What does he mean by that? We'll go on in a second. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. That's what he tells the Pharisees when they ask him, when is the Messianic kingdom coming? Then he said to the disciples, so how much time passes between what he says to the Pharisees to what he says to the disciples? And what about proximity? I'm suggesting that he takes the disciples off to the side, which he did often in my view. And he tells him specifically. Then he said to the disciples, the days, plural, will come when you desire to see one of the days, plural, of the Son of Man, and you will not see. And they, who's they, and they, whoever they is, will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day, singular. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Okay, which generation is that? What generation of who? And then here comes what I think is ace to receptors. As it was in the days of Noah, plural, so it will also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day, the day that Lot went went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he was in the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down or to take them away. And likewise the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Okay, that's where we'll stop today. The kingdom does not, he says to the Pharisees. They said, when, when, were we, when were we going to see this kingdom of God, this messianic kingdom? And he says, the kingdom does not come by God. The kingdom does not come by seeing. The kingdom of God does not come with observation. That's what I meant to say just a few seconds ago. Luke 17, 20. This kingdom of God, they want the messianic kingdom. He gives them a different kingdom. And he says this kingdom does not come. What's going to come before the messianic kingdom is a, is a kingdom that you can't see. So it's not physical. That particular kingdom that comes does not come by seeing. Humanity can't see it. So what he's saying in Luke 17, 21, is that the kingdom of God is unseeable. The invisible God has an invisible kingdom in that sense. 
of the five facets of the kingdom of God, and I won't go through them all, the spiritual kingdom is the unseen one. It is within the believers, so it's inside. This is the indwelling, right? The mystery of the indwelling. Anyway, Jesus, the breather of the breath of the spirit of life. So let me repeat that again. The breather of the breath of the spirit of life. That's John 20, 22. Should I put that on the board? That is Genesis uh, 2 7. That is Genesis uh, 7 22. That's Ecclesiastes. I should always put Ecclesiastes up here 12, 6, and 7. I've been covering that hundreds of times. So. John 20:22, Genesis 2:7, Ecclesiastes 12:7, 7:22, Genesis. The apostle John makes certain that we know, that we knew, that we get to know who Christ is. He does that at John 20:22. 20, the breather of the breath of the Spirit of life. Christ is the us, the Elohim, Elohim of Genesis 1:1. That is the function. If you ask John when you get to see him, what? Why did you write your? Uh, gospel, he will say it's the Holy Spirit in, influenced and actually wrote it. I just was the scriber. But my, well, I thought my purpose was to make sure you knew that Christ is the one who breathes the breath of life in every one of us. He's also the I am of, of Exodus uh, 3.14. He says so. I am Exodus 3.14. The burning bush. Christ, that's who we're talking about. And he tells his disciples, um, I won't put it on, I'll just list it for you. He tells his disciples, first, number one, there's going to be a time, a time is going to come, a days, days are going to come, and his disciples would long to see him. Um, but, the, but they're not going to see him return, Luke 17, 22. They're going to long for him, but they're not going to see him. So there's going to be days that are coming that, that his disciples would wish they could see him again, but they're not going to see him. What does that imply? Think that through. Why aren't they going to see him? How long are these days is really the question, isn't it? Um, and I want you to tie that to this response to the Pharisees. The disciples are not going to see something. The Pharisees are not going to see something. So something's going to happen that is unseen. Obviously, that is the church age. That is the spiritual kingdom. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says, there will be those who will say, look here, look there. But they are not to believe. They will not know. The third thing he says is that he's going to be like lightning, plasma that flashes out of the part of under heaven, out of one part under heaven to the other part under heaven. And that's going to. And so also the son of man will be in his day. So he's going to be like lightning. What does that mean? Lightning is obviously seen and heard. Is he saying, I will be seen and heard in my day? We'll have to investigate that. Fourth, he must suffer first many things and be rejected by this generation. Clearly, that goes back to the Pharisees. Uh, it also returns this last Sunday to lecture number 105 because you have to figure out who this generation is. Who is this generation? You can all answer aloud. That's right. It's the generation that rejected him, Matthew 12, of Israel. 
Again, that takes us back to Mary Magdalene, Thomas, Simon, Peter. That's why I went ahead and used that last week because of how well it fits here. Matthew 12, as you know, the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ. This is where God himself is in the flesh, physically present in front of the nation of Israel. And they reject him on the basis that he is Satan. And that is a national uh, blasphemy. It is not an individual blasphemy. You have to be a nation. You have to be the nation of Israel. Christ has to be in front of you. God must be in front of you. In the manifested physically as Christ is the visible or the invisible made visible. He's the visible aspect of the invisible. And you reject him because you think he's Satan. Or you accuse him of being Satan. Okay? Fifth, the fifth thing he says. And he must be rejected and he must suffer. Let me back up. How do you how does God suffer? God suffers when people reject him. So the rejection and the suffering are tied together. That's why he says he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What are many things? I just submit to you that people are things. And as it was in the days of Noah, so will it also be in the, day, in the days of the Son of Man. That's very interesting. I have days of Noah, so I have an equation. Yay, math. I have days of Noah. Everyone, can you hear everyone on the internet yay, yelling, yay, math? Days of Noah. I have equality. Equivalence is equal to the days of Christ, the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man. It's a messianic term. So again, that tells you it's a messianic kingdom. Obvious question now, right? How many days in the days of Noah? How many days in the days of Noah? Well, and then how many days in the days of Christ? Are they the same number of days? If you can figure out how many days of Noah there were, then you can figure out how many days of the, of the Son of Man. Do you think it's a couple of days? Or is it a lot of days? We know from Genesis 6-3 something. We know... Uh, that my, mankind was given 120 years. And we can evaluate the ages of Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, as well as Methuselah, and we can arrive at some kind of estimate, and people have tried that, as to the duration of the days of Noah, because uh, this has been in dispute for quite some time. How many days of Noah are there? If you can figure that out again, you can make it equal to the days of Christ. There at least is a similarity. Uh, there, may, there is some kind of relationship. There may be exactness. And that is why it's become, it is something of interest. And of course, uh, Luke 17, 27 tells us that the day of Noah, let me read that again. And it was in the days of Noah that it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day of Noah. So I have the days of Noah and I have a day of Noah. Day of Noah. And I'm going to make the equation because if the days of Noah are equal, then I have a day of the Son of Man. Not a very good M, but you get the drift. 
So that day of Noah, that's the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. I'll put that to Revelation 19.11. Put it in here. You can run 19.11 all the way out to, oh, I would say at least uh, verse 21. So, compare the day of Christ, the day of the Son of Man, to the day of Noah, and ask yourself, is that what's being said here? Is this day of Noah when everyone was destroyed equal to Revelation 19:11 through 21? Plus, I got Genesis 7:4 in here. Genesis 7:4 figures into the calculation because Genesis 7:4 is incredible. There's this mystery of the seven days here. Christ, or the Elohim, if you will, which includes Christ, gave them 120 years. And then after the 120 years, what did he do again? He gave them seven days. So why didn't he put the seven days inside the 120 years? Obviously, he has a plan. 7-4 of Genesis figures into the calculation. The seven more days. And after the seven more days, then what happens? It rains on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And after the 120-year warning was a seven-day warning. So I have two warnings, back-to-back warnings. One of them 120 years, the other one seven days. So now you have to ask the easy question, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? Did he build it by himself? Or did he hire a bunch of guys? Did I have a whole bunch of workers building the ark? How long did it take to build the ark? If he did do it by himself, that was a massive undertaking. Of course, if he did it by himself, he would do it much in the manner that I do construction, which means that Lori has to do it all. So I'm assuming that the wife of Noah probably built at least three quarters of the ark. Because somebody's got to be the administrator and the planner. And the other person has to do the work, especially if they're young. Compared, that's a relative term. When you begin to investigate the days of Noah and the day of Noah, prepare for a barrage of opinion, as there is no consensus, very little consensus. So a barrage of, of thoughtfulness, sometimes not so much thoughtfulness, as to what those two terms mean, the days of Noah and the day of Noah. Obviously to me, or what I'm proposing, is that I have days of Noah, and it could be as much as 120 years. It could be a lot less than that. It could be a bunch of things. I'll get to that in a minute. But there also was a singular day, a day brought out. And on that day, that is when they, did, when they were all destroyed. So again, there's hardly any consensus here. But if I were to impose agreement where none exist, um, 120 years as the days of Noah would probably prevail. In other words, they will say that the days of Noah was 120 years. That is the warning period, the first warning. So is there a commissariate, is there a relative 120 years warning of the days of Christ? And if so, when did it start? Did it start 1900? Then where? Where would we be today? Huzza, huzza. 2020, would it be interesting, at least to me, because if we are at the end of the 120 years, days of Christ, that 
is, has a relationship to the days of Noah, then something very incredible is about to occur. Because this is a warning. You get a warning. He always gives warnings. That's what God does. So we have to figure out when it starts. You can see I could write a book again, right? No one would buy it. But to repeat myself, 120 years is usually what you will find the days of Noah is decided to be. That's the one that will uh, come to rise to the top. There will be the second opinion, and that would be the entire pre-flood, pre-flood lifespan of Noah. So uh, Noah's entire lifespan pre-flood would be the days of Noah. And those are the two positions that I have come across that are the most defended. I should say at this juncture, <coughs> excuse me, that the infinite, omniscient, timeless God in the flesh in Luke 17, Jesus Christ, infinite, omniscious, omniscient, timeless God in the flesh knows what he means when he says days of Noah. He knows how long that is and when it is specifically. Duh. He is he is referencing a specific span of time. In addition, Christ knows the totality of the days of Noah. In other words, what happened in the days of Noah. He describes it, doesn't he? He knows the evil, the murdering, the corruption, the wickedness that was great. Mankind's thoughts were only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. So if you take Luke 17 and you go back to Genesis 6, you will find all of these descriptions of incredible wickedness, unimaginable wickedness. I, I submit we have no understanding. Understanding is the level of wickedness and evil that was at Genesis 6. We only guess. All, all flesh was corrupted, Genesis 6, 11 through 12. So what, as awful as that was, it's going to be equal to the days of Christ. The days of the Son of Man. So we, we conclude that mankind at the time or in the days of the Son of Man, will think evil thoughts continually, will corrupt or modify flesh. Killing and violent death will will marinate the earth and accelerate. Uh, I brought up Daniel 12.4 many, many times, and that's again why I bring up micro, microbiology and quantum physics, because humanity is going to know things that humanity has never known before. Even in Genesis 6, where there was an angelic component Humanity does not, did not know what we know now about the structure of the creation, both living and non-living. So Daniel 12.4 says the knowledge of the creation, its structures will grow, it will increase. And, and it will happen rapidly. There's a rapidity to Daniel 12, both in motion and both in knowledge. And yet uh, what I have listed, Genesis 6 doesn't seem to comport with what the infinite, omniscient, creator God in the flesh chose to emphasize or italicize, if you will, in Luke 17, as it was in the days of Noah. How does this sound to you? They ate, they drank, they married. Why is they were given in marriage? That does not sound like Genesis 6. Evil continually of constant violence, blood, killing, brutality, corruption. And corruption has a huge umbrella to it. They ate, they drank, they married wives, given in marriage. That seems benign. 
does not seem, as I said, to be Genesis 6. In fact, many scholars assert that the days of Christ are going to be normal. And what they emphasize is this suddenness. They say there's a suddenness. It's going to be, life is going to be normal. But that doesn't fit my equation, so something is wrong with my mathematics. If the day of Noah, the days of Noah, is equal to the days of Christ, and who said it was? Well, that would be God. So he is on my side. Perhaps I am on his side. Neither one is likely. Uh, I'll get to that later. But hopefully I'm close enough. But he says that the days of the Son of Man and the days of Noah are together. And the days of Noah had unimaginable evil that we cannot even begin to contemplate. We have, didn't see it. It is so bad that God flooded the entire earth. And this they ate, they drank, they married wives, given in marriage. Wow. That seems way down here. How can it be the same? And again, everyone in the commentary business says it isn't about it's it's normality it's just it, life is going on just fine but when is the day of Christ not just the days but the day of Christ well the day of Christ if i am right is in revelation 19:11 through 21 that is post tribulational things are not normal so how does this work and again, they say it's the suddenness of destruction. Does God give warnings? What did I just say? God gave 120 years and seven days of warnings. God gives warnings. So there can't be a sudden something that's going to happen without warning. Now, it'll catch people unaware, but the warning will still be there. God always gives a chance to repent. If there's the sudden destruction, well, that's, that's the same, I guess. But it isn't that sudden that there's going to be a warning period. Well, obviously, the entire tribulation is a warning period. No one who is through the tribulation is, is going to have any doubt of what's going to happen at the end of it. Especially if they have the book of Revelation to read. God always provides salvation. And somehow the point is, yay, yay, points Somehow Christ's list that he gave us, drank, married wives, given marriage, uh, that has to fit with Genesis 6. Somehow they're the same. There can be no other selection other than equality, equivalence. So I'm sorry if you have a different view. And I'm not really sorry. Not really sorry. Fake really sorry. No, that doesn't work. Okay. To repeat, Jesus Christ knows, duh, the totality of the days of Noah. He is in the Elohim. He's the second person of the triune Godhead. He knows what happened. And he knows why the earth was flooded and destroyed. And therefore they ate, they drank, they married wives. That has to be equal to that. I think they're explained. It's ex the explanatory element here is Genesis 6. In other words, I'm saying that they ate, they drank, they married wives. Those are co-conspirators, uh, if you will. They belong together with the wickedness 
of man that was great in the earth. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. All flesh had been corrupted. The end is come before me, God said. The earth is filled with violence. That means that they ate, they drank, they married wives or co-conspirators with Genesis 6 description. Every means every. All means all. Phil means filled. There wasn't, there was the, the exceptions were few. I made the case in the past that the exceptions of the animals and the exceptions of Noah and his family are the only exceptions. The animals had to come from a protected place and the Garden of Eden was still there and, and blocked by the flaming sword. So that's my position. If you haven't heard it before, it's somewhere on the Internet. And anyway, so if we have that kind of condition of evil at the end of the days of Christ, as the day of the Son of Man approaches, who's getting married? In Genesis 6, who's getting married? If they're getting married in the if the days of Noah are going to repeat, who's getting married in Genesis 6? Who's marrying wives? Mankind needs to eat food and drink water to live. But again, this marriage reference. And, that, and let's so, I think it's an easy question. I think I got rid of it for you. You've already answered it amongst yourself. To, to bring everybody up to speed. Why are continually evil beings getting married? Because if they're getting married at the time of the day of the Son of Man, then I'm going to make the assumption that they were getting married at the days of Noah. In that period of time leading up to the flood day, the day of Noah. So who's getting married? Why are continually wicked, corrupted, thank you, I see it, nasty Violent murderers getting married. Who and why? I'm asking, is this Genesis 6, 2 through 4? What is Genesis 6, 2 through 4? That is the cosmologically mixed scene. That's the sons of God saw the daughters of humanity. The sons of God is only angels, angelic beings. Everywhere else in the Bible, sons of God phrase is always only angels. And I'm submitting that getting married here in Luke 17 refers us back to Genesis 6, what is going on cosmologically between the sons of God, the fallen angels, and the daughters of men mixing. Covered that many times. That is the literal view. It's the only one that fits and I submit that Jesus Christ, again, the infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent creator of space, time, energy, and matter, knew what he was saying at 1727 of Luke, and that it fit with the days of Noah in Genesis 6. And it does. Of course he knew, duh. I think it's clear that Genesis 6, 2 through 4 is the central issue of the evil. This is the sons of Belial again. This is Judges 19, 22, 2 Corinthians 6, 15, uh, Genesis 19, 4, 1 Samuel uh, 3, or, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 2, 12, and 2 Samuel 16, 7. That's the sons of Belial. They're very important in, in uh, Scripture. And I'm saying to you, Genesis 6, 2 through 4 is the substrate upon which the entire earth becomes filled with violence. Genesis 6, 11. 
So let me repeat that a bit. I'm trying to position myself into saying to you as clearly as I can that Genesis 6, 2 through 4 is the cause of why the earth was flooded. Because there is a, uh, a sequence here. The evil in the earth, the carnage, the corruption of the flesh, all that caused God to grieve and mourn, that is the condition. And that condition is traceable to a cause. And I am proposing that the cause was Genesis 6, 2 through 4. The angels of God, the daughters of men. What was the motive of the angels of God to come down and do whatever happened with the daughters of men? Well, it's obvious that the image of God is being corrupted. Genesis 1, 26. Genesis 1, 26 is where the Elohim says, Let us make man. Let us make man. In what? Our image. Now that's a big deal. Everyone heard him say it. He said it in his usual very loud voice. Who's the everyone? Because man didn't hear it, did they? So who heard that? Only the angels heard that. And they're not in the image of God. And only man is. And in Genesis 6, that is being corrupted. The image of God is being corrupted. Angelic influence is being added to humanity somehow. And we have no idea yet how that happened. But that's what the Bible says, and I believe it. So what was the motive? I think it's the, the corruption of Genesis 126. As an added consideration, who's doing the eating and the drinking? Because he says so. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married. Who's eating and drinking in the days of Noah? Who is he singling out? He obviously knows who they are. He's an infinite creator, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God who's, who has time consisting in him. So he knows who he's talking about. So we need to know who was eating, who was drinking. Here's the central question in my view. What were they eating? What were they drinking? Because it has to be what? Has to be evil. Absolutely right. So how is it evil? And how would what they are eating and drinking connect directly to marrying and given in marriage? So moving along. In any event, the days, the day of the Son of Man will be just as the day of Noah. And it will immediately end. Just as the day of Noah. Wait, the day of Noah it took 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, how much rain hit? How debilitating was the rain that no one had ever seen before? There was a mist until that point. There will be a mist again at the end of the, uh, or at the in the New Jerusalem and the newer. But immediately ended the wicked ones. That is, of course, the one of the function of the tribulation. It's to save as many people who will come. It is to uh, turn the stubborn people, the Israel, to. The understanding that Christ is the I am of Genesis or Exodus 3.14. It is to end the wicked ones. I just want you to notice that Jesus Christ does things immediately. And here we are now back to Peter. Let me erase all of this. I'm hustling. I, got, I took too long in the uh, reading the announcement.
going to go back to Peter. Actually, it's Thomas. Mary Magdalene. Magdalene. So I have Mary, Magdalene, Thomas, and Peter. Remember from last week? Matthew 14, 29 through 32. Peter denies Christ three times. And is asked three questions. And is in the waters twice. And the first instance, wind and rough water was all around him. Call it troubled water. The times... The time of trouble for Peter, if you wish. Jeremiah 37, Daniel 12, 1, Joel 2, 32. Peter is in trouble. He's got troubled waters, raging waters all around him. And Peter is really Simeon Peter. And that is critically important. The Simeon aspect of Peter. We say Simon Peter and we miss the whole point of it. He's Simeon Peter. And, and we put him along with Simeon, one of the twelve, right? Being bound, Genesis 42, 24. Joseph bound, binds Simeon. He takes Simeon. Simeon is taken because of the Dinah incident of Genesis 34, 25. So I'm starting to accrue for you the Simeon prophecy here. I have Simeon at Dinah 34, 25 of Genesis. I have Simeon being bound by Joseph when he doesn't know who Joseph is. Joseph is a form of Yeshua. So Joseph is a type of Christ there. He's speaking a language they don't understand. That's the Pharisees of Israel because they never understood Christ. That's why he spoke to them in parables because they related back to Joseph and the brothers. The brothers, of course, are the nation of Israel. Joseph is the one that they have rejected. who rose out of the pit, rises to feed the world. So I'm describing to you the Simeon prophecy. I actually have a Simeon the prophet, don't I, at Luke 2.25. It's a behold, Simeon the prophet. Well, it's because he is in this prophecy, the Simeon prophecy. Simeon Peter, Luke 22.54 through 62. John 18.24 through 27. Simeon the, the Cyrenian, Mark 15.21. Matthew 27.32. All of that is part of the Simeon prophecy. John 18.10, Simeon Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, and Christ restores the ear, the hearing of Malchus, Luke 22.51. And of course, John 20 and 21, all of that is Simeon prophecy. Mary Magdalene Thomas and, and Simeon Peter. And I just wanted to point out again, I've done it many times in my so-called career, Simeon connotes leads you to a position of the what of its meaning which is the hearing so the binding of the hearing of the nation of Israel the cutting off of the hearing of Israel and the restoring of the hearing of Israel uh, the denial the rejection all of these have have a nation of Israel this is the hearing of the nation of Israel anyway Simeon Peter cries out Matthew 14 as, as he's about to drown. Let me just point out, what does Christ call him in John uh, 21, 15, 21, 16, 21, 17? What does he say to him? He doesn't say just Simeon Peter. What else does he say? Son of Jonah, son of Jonah, son of Jonah. What happened to Jonah? Three days, three nights is a sign of Jonah. Matthew 12, that's the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ. They asked for a sign. He gave them the sign of Jonah. Connect that to Simeon Peter, who's also drowning because... What happened to Jonah? He's a type of Israel there. He drowns. He's resurrected. He's a picture of Israel, a picture of Christ. He's a picture of the Pharisees with his gourd and 
and the crimson worm. Anyway, Simeon Peter cries out that he's about to drown. Lord, save me, as he's on the edge of slipping beneath the troubled waters, the time of trouble, the raging troubled waters. And what does Christ do? He immediately, instantly saves Israel. I mean Peter. I mean Israel. I mean Peter. I mean Israel. He stretches out his hand, Matthew fourteen thirty one. I ask, how far away is he? How fast did it happen? Jesus Christ's name is salvation. That's his name. That answers the mystery of Agar, Proverbs 30, verse 4. Salvation is the name of the second person of the triune Elohim. No one is saved except by Christ. John 10, 9, John 14, 6, Joel 2, 32. Whoever cries out to him will be saved immediately, instantly, just like Peter was. He will stretch out his hand and catch you. John, Joel 2, 32 is a tribulational reference. That is what Israel says at the end of the tribulation. Lord, save us. Exactly what saved me. That is what Peter said. For today, just notice the immediacy, the instantaneous saving. Christ saves outside of time. How convenient that he is outside of time. If anyone thinks he won't hear me and he won't get to me in time, he's outside of time. He's the one in whom time consists. All things consist. Colossians 1.17. He is able and willing to save those who call upon him to be saved before time elapses. That's what he says in Revelation. I am. Time is inside of me. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. He is infinite and time is inside of him. Because time had a beginning and time was is, is from consciousness, his consciousness. Remember, the one who gave you your breath of the spirit of life before the silver cord is loosed. Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7 again. Romans 10, 10 through 13. That's Joel 2, 32. Cry out to him. He will save you. Everyone. Romans 10, 21 is equal to Isaiah 65, 2. In Isaiah 65, 2, God says this, But to Israel... All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And here you have Christ stretching out his hand to catch Peter, Simeon Peter. And that's the pattern, that's the template. Cry out to Christ, Lord save me, he saves you before time can pass. Obviously, the previous two pages were a surreptitious return to last Sunday's discussion. I, I, I tried to make it fit for you. Maybe I did. In case you thought I'd moved on from last week, I couldn't because it's too important. It's a, I can't complete the subject in one lecture or maybe ten lectures. There's miles to go to tread to get to the end of that. Okay, so now where am I really at? That's right, I am at Luke 17, the days of Noah, the days of Lot, but in this particular case, the days of Noah and the day of Lot, the days of the Son of Man and the day of the Son of Man, the days of Lot and the day of Lot. That's where I really am because I'm looking for H2 receptors. The plan being, yea, a plan. (laughs) 
I got three or four people to laugh. It was the same three or four people, but none left. The plan is to discover the meanings in these signs of Lot and Noah and Lot's wife. That's what the infinite omniscient creator God gave to his disciples. This is what he did. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel who rejected Jesus Christ, Matthew 12, 22 through 50. They are the wicked generation, evil and adulterous generation whose state is worse than the last. That is this generation that he speaks about. Uh, they are the, the Pharisees. They ask Christ, similar to Matthew twelve thirty eight and Luke seventeen twenty. Now, this is a lot of stuff, I know. Uh, we'll, we'll clean it up next week a little bit. I'm actually just giving these references for people who watch this on the Internet because I know it's impossible for me to write them in time and get them out in this period that I have. But the Pharisees asked Christ, when will the kingdom of God come? They mean the messianic kingdom. And he answers them, the kingdom of God is unseen. You're not going to see the kingdom, the messianic kingdom. You're going to not see the spiritual kingdom. So they're not going to see anything, either one. Effectively, he's refusing to answer their question, though he did, because he said the spiritual kingdom is coming. But to his disciples, he does answer the question. And that's the sign of Noah, sign of Lot, sign of Lot's wife. And within that is this eating and drinking of Noah's day. His days, sorry. And the eating and drinking of Lot's days. Notice they're eating and drinking in both the days of Lot and they're eating and drinking both in, in the days of Noah. I said both too many times. I'll say both too many times again, both. So I got this eating and drinking in Lot and eating and drinking in Noah and somehow they're evil. We know Lot's place was extremely evil. Sodom, incredibly evil. Great wickedness. But so was Noah. The words are the same. They both have exceeding wickedness. We also have the marrying and being given in marriage. And along with all of that, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. And again, Lot's wife. So it's necessary to ask in my most humble of humbling opinions, what is the connectivity to eating and drinking, marrying and being married, given in marriage, bought, sold, planted, built, Lot's wife? Where else does Christ refer to eating and drinking? We could just go get that and compare it, couldn't we? So I'm going to read it. Because it's amazing. It's John 6. I can find it. We've got to hurry now. Where will I start? Verse 48. I am the bread of life. First he said, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. You say, Lord, save me. Everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the bread, the manna in the wilderness and are dead. So this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. He, manna was a picture of him. He is the living bread that manna is the picture of, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's the Pharisees. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life I will raise him up at the last day 
What day is that? My blood is, is drink indeed. He who eats my fresh flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. And the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Verse 66. Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more because of that. He's talking about eating and drinking, isn't he? What's he talking about? Eating flesh and drinking blood. His blood, his flesh. Obviously, we correctly understand the symbolism that is communion. Matthew 26, 26 through 29, Mark 14, Luke 22, 19. But also there's Leviticus 17, 11 and 17, 13 and 14. The prohibition of eating blood, drinking blood. Did the infinite, omniscient, omnipotent Jesus God, creator God, the breather of the breath of life, did he know Leviticus 17 when he said this? Did he know Exodus 16, the manna bread from heaven, when he said, I am the bread of life. If anyone eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. Did he know? Why do I ask intentionally stupid questions? Of course he knew. He has to know. He's the word. It testifies of him. He knows all things, John 21, 17, John 19, 28. All things. There's nothing he doesn't know. It's a hard saying, no doubt. Few understand the relationship of John 6, 48 through 60 to Genesis 2, 7, which is the breath of life being breathed into Adam, to John eleven twenty five, where Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life, as well as Genesis seven twenty two, which we've talked about a hundred times now in Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7. But he, Jesus Christ, the resurrector, he's the resurrector of the body and the breather of the breath of the spirit of life into the resurrected body. He's the only one who is the resurrector and the breather of the breath of life. So what were they eating at the time of Noah and the time of Lot? Who was eating? Let me rephrase it. Who were they eating? Whose blood were they drinking? Why were they doing this? How evil is it? That's where we stop. We will answer none of those questions next week. As is my custom.